Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 108, Space Shuttle Flight 37, STS-38, On the Prowl. Last time, we talked about the flight of Space Shuttle Discovery on STS-41. This third of three shuttle missions to deploy interplanetary probes gave us a little window into the alternate history where the shuttle remained the primary launch vehicle for the United States. Instead, for the remainder of the shuttle program, interplanetary probes would be launched on expendable launch vehicles. After a tough summer plagued by the bad news from the Hubble Space Telescope and a seemingly intractable hydrogen leak problem, the successful mission must have been a breath of fresh air. But with the Ulysses probe on its way out to swing around Jupiter, we now turn our attention back to one of the two missions caught up in the summer of hydrogen leaks, STS-38. STS-38, flown by Atlantis, is our seventh and final fully classified space shuttle mission. I told you we'd get through them eventually. The partnership between the Department of Defense and NASA ushered the space shuttle into reality, but never quite worked as well as anyone had hoped. Cultural differences between the two organizations, delays to the optimistic flight manifest, and finally the loss of Space Shuttle Challenger first strained and then broke the relationship between the DoD and the shuttle. We'll still see some partially classified flights down the road, and of course the DoD and NASA continue to work together to this day, but the whole classified shuttle thing just didn't really work out. Usually, I sort of dread these classified missions, since there's often a dearth of information to talk about. But for this one, the DoD accidentally gave us a special treat. A multi-layered mystery that unfolds over the course of more than 20 years. As always with a classified flight, we'll have more questions than answers. But even if we don't arrive at any definitive conclusions, we're going to have a fun time enjoying the journey. Let's just get right into it. Commanding the flight would be Dick Covey. We know Covey from his flights as pilot on STS-51I and STS-26, and of course for his role as Capcom during the launch of STS-51L. This time he's moving from the pilot seat to the commander seat, and this is his third of four missions. Joining Covey up front was our pilot, Frank Culbertson. Frank Culbertson was born on May 15, 1949 in Charleston, South Carolina. Culbertson is an Annapolis graduate who continued on to a career in the Navy, flying the F-4 Phantom and F-14 Tomcat while serving in a variety of technical roles. He graduated from the Navy's test pilot school in 1982 and was working in Virginia when he was selected as an astronaut in 1984. This is his first of three flights, but Culbertson is a lifelong space guy, sticking around at NASA until 2002 before moving into the aerospace industry, where he remained until 2019. Mission Specialist 1, sitting in the back right of the flight deck, was Carl Mead. Carl Mead was born on November 16, 1950, at the Chanute Air Force Base in Illinois. That's one way to get started with the Air Force early, I guess. But actually, before joining the Air Force, Mead attended Caltech, and then became an electronics design engineer at Hughes, who have made so many of the payloads we've seen in the early shuttle program. And, well, let's just say I perked up a bit when I saw that we had a former Hughes employee on this flight, for reasons that will become more clear later on in the episode. Meade followed the pattern we've seen so often of flying a variety of aircraft, graduating from test pilot school, and working on various aircraft and weapon systems as a test pilot. He was selected as an astronaut in 1985, and this is his first of three flights. Sitting in the middle of the flight deck was Mission Specialist 2, Bob Springer. 
We know Bob from his role as Mission Specialist 1 on STS-29, which was one of the first few missions after the post-Challenger returned to flight, deploying Tedris d This is his second and final flight. And last but not least, Mission Specialist 3, Sam Gamar. Charles Gamar, who somehow goes by Sam despite his middle initial being a D, was born on August 4th, 1955 in Yankton, South Dakota. Right out of high school, Gamar joined the Army, which put him through several years of additional schooling before teaching him how to fly. He was serving with the 24th Infantry Division at Fort Stewart in Georgia when NASA came calling, selecting him as an astronaut in 1985. This is his first of three flights. STS-38 had a rough road to orbit. It was originally supposed to launch on July 9th, 1990. It had even rolled out to the pad in late June. But then on June 29th, as we discussed last time, a hydrogen leak was discovered during a tanking test. Then it was discovered again on July 13th. And again on July 25th. Eventually, Atlantis was rolled back to the VAB on August 9th, where they replaced the part responsible for the leak. I'll get more into the hydrogen leaks next time, but it's not really my focus for today's episode. So let's just say they fixed it. Atlantis rolled back to the pad on October 13th, successfully passed a leak check on October 24th, and on November 15th was finally ready to fly. On the big day, there were no major issues. A problem at the Bermuda tracking station caused a small delay, but since the planned liftoff time is still classified, we have no idea how long it actually was. In any case, on November 15, 1990, at 6.48pm Eastern Time, Atlantis lifted off from Launch Complex 39A, and for the fifth time, the Florida night sky was lit up by an ascending space shuttle. As usual with classified missions, we don't officially know a lot about what happened. I can tell you that something was deployed, and that NASA seems satisfied with the result. I can poke around the edges and see stuff like how the robotic Canadarm did not fly, which narrows down what type of payload it might be, but not by a ton. One relevant piece of information is that just a few months before the launch, on August 2nd, 1990, Iraq invaded Kuwait, kicking off the first Gulf War. So a lot of attention was suddenly being turned towards Iraq and Kuwait. So maybe that's what the secret spacecraft is up to. Contemporary issues of Aviation Week and Space Technology claimed that the payload would be focusing on Iraq and Kuwait, providing Signals Intelligence. Signals Intelligence, or SIGINT, is basically just snooping on radio-transmitted data. Cell phones, radios, microwave relays, that sort of stuff. I'm not really sure that an Iraq-centric SIGINT mission makes a lot of sense here, though. Shuttle missions take a long time to plan and train for and this particular mission was supposed to launch almost a full month before Iraq made their move. So it would be a remarkable stroke of good luck if their Iraq-focused SIGINT satellite just happened to be next on the pad. Another piece of evidence against this idea is that the inclination of the flight was more suitable for launching stuff into geostationary orbit. And also, that's where the payload went. It still could be a SIGINT satellite, maybe something like Magnum, which we've seen before, but Magnum rode an inertial upper stage to GEO, and a photo on a Johnson Space Center website showing part of Atlantis's cargo bay does not show the support equipment required for an IUS. So between that and some evidence we'll discuss in a bit, the safe bet seems to be that it was a communications relay satellite. Because typically the only thing you'd send to GEO are commsats or stuff doing SIGINT, and we expect SIGINT to use an IUS, which we don't think was used. 
there was just one sort of weird thing about this deploy. Associated with the payload in the satellite catalog were two pieces of debris labeled as rocket bodies. For a two-stage kick motor like the IUS, this would be expected. But didn't we just determine that this maybe a commsat did not use an IUS? Huh, that's weird. So what's up with that second rocket body? Hmm. Well, anyway, the satellite was successfully deployed, so maybe we shouldn't worry too much about it. What else happened on this flight? Unfortunately, I couldn't really find much about the side activities and secondary payloads that usually accompany a mission like this. There were a few minor anomalies, but nothing really all that interesting. Just as one example, the galley leaked water again, and they used a towel to clean it up. Thrilling. No word on tags, though, so I guess the semi-cursed printer system was working alright. Like a lot of classified missions, the plan was to do a sort of hop-and-pop short flight. Hop up there, pop out the payload, and you're back in time to sign your time card at the end of the week. But the weather refused to cooperate. On flight day 4, Atlantis remained in orbit through three different landing opportunities at Edwards Air Force Base, but the wind conditions remained unacceptable, so the crew got every astronaut's favorite treat, an extra day on orbit. Well, I guess every astronaut but Frederick Gregory as we learned a few flights back, but he's not here, so hooray, extra day in space. However, even on flight day 5, after their extra day in space, they still had a weather problem. In a weird reversal, the weather at Edwards still refused to cooperate, but the weather in Florida was great. So it was that for the first time since STS-51D, way back in 1985, a space shuttle touched down on the shuttle landing facility runway at the Kennedy Space Center. STS-38's total flight time was 4 days, 21 hours, 54 minutes, and 27 seconds. Whatever happened up there, the mission was declared a success, and it faded away into the realm of spaceflight obscurity, where only the hardcore crazies pick at it on internet forums and, well, um, podcasts. The episode ends here, right? Nope. The plot is about to thicken. Before we get into it, I just wanted to mention that the rest of the episode pulls heavily from a few sources. Two papers by satellite observer Ted Molkson, and the February 1999 issue of the British Interplanetary Society publication Spaceflight. I'll give more details about these sources later, but I wanted to make sure they got some credit up front. Also, I want to remind you that like all classified missions, I'm piecing this story together from incomplete public data and informed speculation. In the time I had available to research this episode, I couldn't fully explore the topic, and there are still some inconsistencies in the story. But what I did learn makes sense to me, and it's pretty compelling. So with the usual disclaimer out of the way, let's try to find out what happens next. On February 4th, 1998, something pretty weird happened. The National Reconnaissance Office decided to let a camera crew with the CBS Evening News into one of their satellite facilities. The National Reconnaissance Office, or NRO, is so secretive that despite being founded in 1961, its very existence was classified until 1992. Not just their activities, the fact that it was a thing at all. So the fact that they were talking to reporters was pretty unusual. In the CBS report, some under-construction spacecraft are shown and discussed, including a radar reconnaissance spacecraft, which we know as LaCrosse, and some sort of communications relay satellite based on a Hughes spacecraft bus. 
In the interview, a representative of Hughes described a satellite network for relaying imagery to the ground from the satellites that take pictures. In other words, he seems to be talking about the SDS network we're already familiar with. This tracks with what we already knew. Several classified shuttle missions had flown into high-inclination orbits, suitable for deploying relay satellites into what's called a Molnaya orbit. These are highly eccentric orbits that place their apogee such that they can see high-latitude locations for a long time, basically making it easy for assets near one of the poles to communicate. But it would also make sense to have an element of this network in geostationary orbit, which was likely what was in the back of Atlantis on the lower-inclination STS-38. One more bit of data backing this up was a 1996 lawsuit between Hughes, the manufacturer of the ComSat NRO Revealed, and one of its employees. The employee said he had been unfairly demoted, which isn't the part we're interested in. We're interested in the fact that he claimed to have worked on a military satellite that launched in the winter of 1990. The only option here is STS-38. And since we already suspected this based on the orbit analysis and the fact that Hughes makes relay satellites, I'm just going to go ahead and call this one tentatively confirmed. So that's pretty cool. With a little orbit analysis, some patience, and a lucky break with the NRO news story, it seems that we've figured out what Atlantis delivered to orbit, a classified communications relay satellite headed to GEO. But once again, we're not quite at the end of the story. On December 9th, 2004, Robert Windrum published an article with NBC News titled, What is America's Top Secret Spy Program? In the article, Windrum covers an ongoing debate in the United States Senate over some sort of classified program. One senator publicly made a statement that the programs were so, quote, stunningly expensive, unquote, that they were a danger to national security. Okay, so stunningly expensive secret government program. That's probably a spacecraft, right? That's sort of interesting on its own, but nothing really to write home about. The U.S. military has all sorts of stuff going on in space and all sorts of classified activities in general, and a lot of it costs a bunch of money. And remember, classified doesn't automatically mean interesting. But the article continues on with something that most certainly is interesting. A claim that in November of 1990, Space Shuttle Atlantis deployed a highly classified satellite called Prowler. Okay, you have my attention. Prowler, according to the NBC article, was a satellite designed to snoop around in geostationary orbit, closely approaching Russian satellites and learning all about them. How close? The article's expert source claims Prowler could move in as close as one foot away from other satellites. That's... Okay, that would have sounded crazy to me anyway, but I've spent the last two years or so working on Restore-L, a mission to rendezvous with, inspect, and refuel Landsat 7, and I can tell you that this is incredibly hard. And unlike Prowler, we're not doing anything in secret. Maneuvering that close to an uncooperative spacecraft, presumably with some degree of autonomy, and without being detected? Wow, that sounds really hard. Such a spacecraft would be incredibly useful from a military point of view. And remember, the Cold War is still going on even in 1990. It would learn all about the construction of Russian satellites, their frequencies, and could even block the signal by literally just drifting in front of them, physically blocking the beam. In fact, that same expert source from the NBC News article claims that this was successfully done with a U.S. ComSat as a test. The government has never acknowledged any of this, and crazy stories about secret things in space aren't exactly uncommon, so we should definitely look at all of this with a critical eye. 
especially given the extreme difficulty of the mission and the fact that such a spacecraft would have the potential to be a huge liability. If it was discovered, it would likely be viewed as incredibly confrontational, with the potential to escalate the militarization of space. It also raises some obvious questions, like, why didn't anybody notice this thing? It's possible that it had some sort of sneaky stealth technology that would have kept it hidden once out at the distant Geo ring, but it would still need to get to Geo in the first place without being spotted. How is that possible? Rockets are not exactly subtle. Well, put that thought on hold for a moment as we once again do a little time traveling, this time back to 1998. On July 31st, 1998, amateur satellite observer Ed Cannon noticed something interesting. Something was flashing in Geo. Usually if you see something flashing in orbit, it's either in a controlled spin or an uncontrolled tumble. As the object rotates, shiny surfaces will momentarily reflect the sun, creating what looks like a flash. This isn't super unusual. There are plenty of satellites that spin on purpose, plenty of dead satellites that tumble, and plenty of old rocket bodies that have been tumbling ever since they got up there. But by carefully watching this object over the next few months and analyzing the flashing pattern, Ed and his observing partner Mike McCants were pretty sure that this was a satellite. They lost track of it for a while, but found it again in June of 2000, not immediately recognizing it as the same object. Once they found it again, other satellite watchers got in on the action, and soon they had enough observations to have a pretty good idea of the satellite's orbit. The satellite wasn't in any public catalog, but again, that's not super unusual. It could have been something secret, something misplaced, it could have been some debris, whatever. The satellite observer community kept an eye on it and moved on with their lives. But they also kept observing, and eventually they found every single observable object in geostationary orbit and traced them back to a particular launch. All of them. Except one. Ed Cannon's flashing satellite. With this one mystery object left to identify, folks started to dig in deeper. What could have launched it? Where could it have come from? Just to quickly refresh your memory, during Atlantis's five-day flight, it deployed what we're now pretty sure was a classified communications relay satellite. In the public catalogs, there were two pieces of debris associated with this deploy, two perigee kick motors. But we'd only expect that from an inertial upper stage. And thanks to a photo of the payload bay, we're pretty sure that an IUS was not used. Which probably means a PAM-D or something similar was used, which would only create one rocket body. So what was the second rocket body? In our last bit of time traveling, we jump forward again to 2011, 21 years after STS-38, and meet hobbyist satellite observer Ted Mulkson. Ted's been watching satellites for a long time. I even found and read some of his old Usenet posts discussing techniques on how to observe STS-38 and its secret payload back in 1990. That's before the World Wide Web had even gone public. In 2011, Ted published a paper asserting that STS-38 was the mission that deployed Prowler. The thought process goes like this. Let's say you have a sneaky satellite that you don't want anyone paying attention to but it needs to ride a non-sneaky kick motor to geostationary orbit. You need something to distract everyone, and you also need a way to account for this kick motor, which will likely be spotted eventually. Well, what could be a bigger distraction than a shuttle mission? So let's actually deploy an actually classified payload, the relay satellite, and let's let everyone think that it's the main objective. While everyone's taking a close look at the relay satellite, 
will then even more secretly deploy a second payload and have it follow the first one to GEO. Everyone expects there to be a secret satellite, so if they see the crew taking pains to deploy a secret satellite, they're going to assume it's THE secret satellite. So when a few hours later the crew quietly deployed a second secret satellite out of sight of specific ground-based assets, nobody would be looking for it. Who expects two secret satellites? There are, as you might expect, a large number of technical challenges to pulling this off. Moksen actually dedicates a whole second paper to the logistics of deploying Prowler while minimizing the chances of being seen. But what makes this extra hard is that it's not enough to be sneaky while flying to Geo or while doing whatever it is while it was up there. It needed to be sneaky after the mission ended. It needed to be sneaky after whatever made it hard to see was turned off, and after it was out of propellant to move around. It needed to be sneaky forever. As Mogsen details, a compelling argument that this object is indeed Prowler is that it seems to have been intentionally and carefully placed in an orbit that would allow it to drift in such a way that it would remain over the Western Hemisphere and out of view of Russia, all while minimizing the time that it spends drifting close to other geostationary satellites. That could have just happened by chance, but who knows? None of this is concrete evidence, none of it is definitive, and a lot of it goes off of two papers written by some guy who I just found on the internet. It's possible that the IUS support equipment just wasn't in the photo of Atlantis's cargo bay. It's possible that the relay satellite, if it even was one, used some previous unknown two-stage system, accounting for both rocket bodies. It's possible that what Ed Cannon found was just an old piece of debris that happened to end up in a librating orbit that's hard to observe from Russia while simultaneously not becoming a nuisance to other satellite operators. And it's also possible that some very clever and very sneaky engineering was going on above our heads in the winter of 1990. Which is more likely? Well, that's going to have to be for you to determine. Personally, I'm just happy to enjoy a fascinating story that unfolds like a heist movie in space. Once more, I'd like to thank Ted Mulkson for his excellent papers covering the topic, if you'd like to read them for yourself, I'll link them in the show's announcement tweet and include it on the show notes page if I ever actually get around to making it, but you can also easily search for them yourself by looking for the titles. Unknown Geo Object 2653A-9007, identified as Prowler. You can probably leave out the numbers. And Evaluation of the Opportunity to Launch Prowler on STS-38. Just to make things easier, Ted's last name is spelt M O L. C-Z-A-N. I also want to thank the British Interplanetary Society, who helped me get my hands on their February 1999 issue of Spaceflight, and even provided it to me for free. I wasn't familiar with their publication before, and I was really impressed. I'm looking forward to digging into more of their back catalog. Next time! We know NASA had a tough time with hydrogen leaks over the summer of 1990, but just what was the problem? We'll find out and explore the latest Space Lab payload, Astro-1. We'll also set a new spaceflight first. First necktie in orbit. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. Pass.